on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, a real character of Tasmanian agriculture named in the Australia Day Awards. Work with organic agriculture. I've done coast care, but as a volunteer, kept Somerset Beach free of rubbish. And land care with Wynyard Land Care. Oh, we've achieved a lot. And then the dung beetles and the earthworms. Oh, yes. And another award for services to aquaculture. When I joined, we had three trawlers working for us, catching wild caught fish. And then in 1991, we got involved in aquaculture and we had fish farms in Macquarie Harbour as well as Cressy. It certainly was a very exciting time growing our famous Petunia trout and Atlantic salmon. Yeah, several Tasmanian recipients of the Australia Day Awards. Their stories coming up for you. G'day, Tony, with you on this Thursday. Trust you're going well, whatever you may be across this state. Whatever you're doing, maybe still working or just relaxing, have a great day. Also coming up, plenty of lamb on the barbie, but we look at the latest trends in the lamb market, see what's happening there. Plus some new rural categories in the latest list of apprenticeships announced by the federal government. We'll check the weather as well as per normal and take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438922936. That number 0438922936. Well, among those awarded an Order of Australia medal today is someone who can often be spotted digging in Tasmanian paddocks, wearing a hat decorated with dung beetles and breaking into song. Graham Stevenson, who is renowned in Tasmania for his pioneering work with dung beetles and earthworms, has been named in the awards. But as he and wife Janice explained to Meg Powell, some of his proudest moments have been dressed in a white lab coat, holding a bandaged bucket of soil in front of hundreds of school children. Now, I better start with a congratulations to you, Thank Dr. You Graham Stevenson. Much. Thank you, Meg. Now, how did, how did you feel when you found out the news? Absolutely pleased to the hilt. I was. Totally unexpected, but uh, a thrill. And uh, Janice can attest to the fact that it's been very hard to live with the last. <laughs> Has he, Janice? <laughs> Look, it's it's been a roller coaster, but it's fun. <laughs> that go roller coasters and fun go together, don't they? They absolutely do. Now, Graham, I'll be honest. I thought you actually already had an OAM. Well, uh, I was awarded as the Senior Australian of the Year for Tassie in 2020. Also, I've received the Premier's inaugural Landcare Award. Yes, uh, they're the three, and they're the two previous major ones. You've been awarded this for in recognition of your contributions in land care and, and in agriculture. Did you ever expect to win so many awards for poo, essentially? Well, I am a pooologist, <laughs> Meg. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what a worthy topic, of yes, course. Yes, yes. Well, it's not all about poo. Some of it was. I've had probably five arrows to my bow. Strings to my bow. <laughs> Five strings to your bow, yes. <laughs> yes, I've worked with organic agriculture. I've done coast care, but as a volunteer, kept Somerset Beach free of rubbish. And land care with Wynyard Land Care. Oh, we've achieved a lot. And then the dung beetles and the earthworms. Oh, yes. 
so it's kept me fairly preoccupied. And and also the the children's skits, Doctor Splattergrunt. <laughs> and Sally the Sick Soil. Now, for our radio listeners, there a massive smile just split your face. That's quite dear to your heart. Oh, I've probably done forty or fifty acts at schools. A hunk of soil dug from a backyard with bandages wrapped around it, <laughs> and that's Sally the Sick Soil in a little pram. Oh, and she was run over by a tractor when she was wet. Oh, poor Sally! And so Doctor Spluttergrunt examines her with stethoco- uh, stethoscope and drama, <laughs> and the kids loved it, and so did I. <laughs> and Sally needs dung beetle pills and earthworm tablets <laughs> to get holes in her. Uh huh. <laughs> Because she was squished down. (laughs) Yes, all the holes were squished close and soils need holes. And if you don't have holes yourself, you can be rather blocked up. (laughs) (laughs) I see you haven't lost your flair for the dramatics. Would you agree with that, Janice? (laughs) Yes, very much. So the school acts were just gorgeous. Um, And the dung beetles and the earthworms. Oh, I could drive down the Midlands Highway, see some poop in the paddock, stop the car, jump the fence, and the farmer would be out in a few minutes. What are you (laughs) doing here, mate? Looking for dung beetles. A friend for life. (laughs) So you didn't get the police called on you too many times? No, no, no. Didn't get the poo (laughs) thrown at me. So farmers... They love the earthworms and the dung beetles very much, Lee. You've retired now for a few years. How important was it to you to pass on your knowledge? Oh, to get two young fellas interested, um, very important. There's more work to be done. Um, particularly, well, land care looks after itself in many respects. Um, it's well organised in Tassie. And it goes on. But the dung beetles and the earthworms needed some enthusiasm. And that's what's happened. So that's what's needed. Because there's more to be done. Oh, yes. Now, do you have, this is a bit of a cheeky question, but do you have any idea who nominated you for an OAM? Not a clue. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd love to know. <laughs> But uh, You can't nominate yourself, can you? No. No. <laughs> Janice, what's it been like watching your husband over all these years put in just endless hours? Well, it's been a joy to watch him find what he was really passionate about, whether or not it earned him money or not, because after he left the Ag Department um, in 1993, um, it was very much he burnt his bridges, and so cold turkey had to reinvent himself. So I've watched him forge ahead both as a visionary leader and also pitching in with the people he was helping to lead, saying we're all in this together. So he was able to lead but be at the ground level doing the dirty work as well and inspiring others and having a, having a lot of fun along the way. How did you keep up the energy over all that time of performing for kids and teaching and digging around in fields and all those things? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
Yes. How... It was just so satisfying, Meg, to be doing something positive for the planet. Oh, yes. And farming, to help farmers face the future. Oh, that was very satisfying. So I think that was my energy, um, as much as anything. There's still lots of energy left, Dr. Graham Stevenson, OAM. Talking to Meg Powell, telling her just what energised his tireless years working in land care, helping farmers and inspiring kids to think about, of all things, soil health and those dung beetles and also the earthworms. And we heard from Janice Stevenson. Well, another character from the Tasmanian agricultural scene has been recognised today. Tim Hess is a former director of Petuna and helped transform Tasmania's logistics industry, particularly in fresh food. But he says he's most proud of the family, including the eight grandchildren that have kept him busy during retirement. Tim Hess, you've just been appointed into the Order of Australia. Firstly, congratulations. Thank you, Mick. No, it's certainly a very humbling experience and I'm very honoured to have received that award. And uh, you're telling me you've got no idea who's appointed you? No, I have not, and uh, it certainly was a very exciting time to be made aware of it, and uh, yes, it certainly kept uh, very much confidential. Team, you've been recognised for your tremendous contributions to freight and logistics as well as to aquaculture. Let's, let's start at the beginning. Where did it all start for you, working in this area? Yes, well, I started work in... Smithton with W.D. Peacock and Company, and who were at that time also the agents for ACT Container Shipping. And uh, I became a shipping agent and spent my time working in northern Tasmania, uh, looking after sh- shipping interests, exporting and importing from, from Australia into Europe and to USA. And from there you uh, moved to Melbourne, worked in Melbourne as well? Yes, I did. I spent, I spent time in Melbourne. I spent 10 years in Melbourne working in the shipping industry, uh, which I enjoyed very much. Um, and then in 1987, we, we decided to move back to Tasmania and I joined our, my wife's family business, which is Petuna Seafoods. Which you're perhaps most well known for as a, a former director of Petuna. Yes, no, I've, I've really enjoyed my time working with the family um, and it's been a, a great experience We how the, how the company has grown. Um, when I joined, we had three trawlers working for us, catching wild-caught fish. And then in 1991, we got involved in aquaculture and we had fish farms in Macquarie Harbour as well as Cressy. And uh, it certainly was a very exciting time growing our famous Petunia Ocean trout and Atlantic salmon. So you actually, you were there at a time when uh, the Tasmanian salmon industry was really growing into, growing into its own. There was a lot of change. Certainly was. When we joined the, comp- when we joined the industry, uh, there were 10 companies producing about 12,000 tonnes. Uh, on my retirement last year, there were three companies producing in excess of 60,000 tonnes. So it's, it's been a major change. And, the, and the, the interesting part about it all is that the growth in the salmon market has been in the domestic Australian market, which has been very exciting. Right, so more local consumption. Very much so, very much so, yes. Now, there was a, a strange sort of synergy between your former job and your job with Petuna. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, when I moved back, um, all of our chilled seafood was going by air and it was very, very difficult to maintain and control because it was getting across to Melbourne and we were losing control of our quality. 
So at the time, TT Line was just starting to emerge as a major cargo carrier across Bass Strait. So we actually pioneered uh, the, the using of the TT Line vessel to take our chilled seafood across to the mainland. And from, from Melbourne, we then expanded into Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth. And the beauty of it was working with companies like Fresh Freight and Toll is that it actually uh, was a controlled temperature all the way through, so we had a much better quality product. And uh, from there, a lot of companies followed our, followed our suit in terms of what we did there. So that was quite, a, quite an achievement and we're very proud of that. So even though it's much slower, hours and hours slower, it's actually proved to be better. Yes, well, the, the secret is having to be able to control your temperature all the way through. And managing temperature in chilled seafood products is critical for the quality of the product. And uh, from, from there, other products actually started doing the similar thing you were saying, so flowers and cheese and other things. And fresh berries. And as you can see now, we've got a lot of fresh products from Tasmania now being exported to the mainland. And uh, I've always said that from Tasmania being an, an, an island, the importance of having a, an excellent freight service is critical to our, our economy. I suppose you might have already answered this, but looking back, what are some of the more proud achievements you're prouder of from your lifetime of work? Yes, well, I, I would say that um, certainly working in the freight industry, I really enjoyed that. But I think perhaps joining Petuna at a time when we were transforming from a wildcat operation into fish farming, that was very exciting times. And uh, I worked very closely with my in-laws, Peter and Una Rockliffe, who owned the company at that time. And uh, we were able to, to develop, in, in particular, our ocean trout, which became a well-known product worldwide. So uh, that, was, that was very exciting. And I travelled a lot through Asia, China and USA and um, Southeast Asia, maintained some excellent contacts, and uh, it was great to see our product being accepted by chefs on a worldwide basis. Now, speaking of fish farming, that's changed again even in the last couple of years and particularly in the last 12 months, which coincidentally you were retired for. What do you make of the, this change in public opinion around fish farming? No, look, I, I think it's, it's a case now the industry is going to, be con, going to consolidate and be very important as part of our, our economy going forward in the future. Certainly, I think that the image of the, all the, of the three companies now has certainly been uh, promoted and being made very strong, you might say, uh, in the eyes of the public. A lot of work's been done with our community engagement. I know one of my last roles with, with Petuna was to work very closely with our Far North West project, which I was quite proud of, the fact coming from Smithton originally and going back there and just being able to identify an opportunity. It's, it's faced a fair bit of protest action in the last maybe two years as well. Will that change the way the companies operate? Look, I think we're always going to have the minority having being able to voice their opinion. That's democracy. Um, the important thing, I think, for the industry and in particular the three companies is to make sure that we maintain integrity and a standard which can be seen to be, make Tasmanians very proud. And uh, I should mention at this stage too that our company in particular, we are one of the in inaugural members of Brain Tasmania and we're very proud to be able to promote the brand in of our Tasmanian ocean trout and salmon worldwide, and it's, it certainly was very well regarded. And just back to your your award, um, what's next for Tim Hess? You've you've reached that's 
kind of peak level, isn't it, AM? Yeah, it's certainly, uh, it's certainly a, a very exciting time. I'm currently a director of the Tasmanian Civic Industry Council, which I really enjoy being part of, and also on the Economic Advisory Panel for the Cradle Coastal Authority, which gets me involved in what's happening in our local area. And that, that is also very challenging, and uh, I think it's very exciting times for Tasmania. We've, uh, it's, a, it's a great place to live, and, and I think that our future as a state is, uh, is just tr- amazing really and when you think back what we can grow now and what we're what we're producing it's it's it is certainly amazing we've got i've got eight grandchildren i'm, I'm very well supported by my wife diane uh, and uh, we've, we've got some plans to travel of course um, but uh, certainly uh, i like i've got hobbies of gardening and fishing believe it or not and uh, i think just more importantly in making sure enjoying a good healthy life and, and, and enjoying a, a great lifestyle the secret to healthy, happy living. Thank you, Tim Hess. Thank you very much, Megan. Yeah, former Petuna Director and Freight Expert, Tim Hess AM. Speaking now to Meg Powell, he's been appointed a member of the Order of Australia. Now, coming up, a look at the organic meat industry and a stalwarts of organics. She goes back, she clips it through mid-wicket. Today, ABC Sports Summer of Cricket continues. This is a T20 you won't want to miss. Catch all the action of the Women's T20 International between Australia and Pakistan. Every ball, every catch, every wicket and every big kit. Australia v Pakistan, live from Hobart. She jumps up in the air. On ABC Radio, ABC Sport Digital and live on the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Now, the pleasure of eating a piece of organic steak that you can guarantee has been raised naturally is not lost on Darlene Ray. Despite it being a dinner staple after she grew up in Birdsville, she's been honoured for significant service to the organic beef industry and to professional organisations with a member of the Order of Australia. As the Managing Director of OBE Beef, an organic beef export company, she says first-hand experience of shopping in overseas supermarkets where food that's clean and safe is not obvious. We're lucky to live in a country where we still um, can trust the food that's that's grown and consumed in Australia. Uh, so I think we're a little bit behind the rest of the world with regards to demand for organic products in, in other parts of the world where we have we, we don't have clean, green agricultural production. There are consumers that are looking for food that's clean and safe and organic certification guarantees that. Uh, in, I lived in Hong Kong for over six years and the food, all of the food is imported into Hong Kong and what I was looking for when I was a, a young mum there was food that was grown in certain places around the world that gave me confidence that it didn't have harmful chemicals or antibiotics in it. How hard was that? Well, I think um, I call myself an organic mum, which is me, which meant I'm a, a mother with young children and I was making informed choices about the food that I was giving my children. And what I was looking to avoid was food from, from certain countries. Uh, so it's interesting. I, I would rather pay more for food, guaranteeing it wasn't from somewhere. And that's what I, I think we don't fully appreciate in Australia because almost all the food we eat here is from, from Australia. We haven't had the scandals that other countries have had. We haven't been consuming beef and then found out it was horse. We haven't been 
giving our children baby formula and then found out that it had a you know carcinogenic chemical in it so uh i think as as um, leaders in agriculture we need to ensure that continues in australia uh but as a net exporter we also have to understand what consumers are wanting in the places that we export to and there is an insatiable demand for certified organic product product around the world that also tells me that australia's got a brand that needs protecting. How are you influencing that as the chair of the Organic Industries of Australia? So we're a, a peak industry body that represents the interested in, interests of diverse stakeholders, and that's everything from farmers who are farming grain crops in WA to wine growers in near Canberra to the certifiers that are certified by, by the Australian government. Uh, what we're, we're, we're prosecuting for at the moment, I guess, is domestic regulation. So your listeners might not be aware that we have regulations which control the exports of organic product out of Australia and we need to, it's very rigorous and it's managed under the Export Control Act, but we don't have the same regulation domestically. What that means is someone can go into a butcher shop in, in Dagaminda or, or Roma and can uh, be sold organic beef and it may not necessarily be certified. And we're one of the few jurisdictions in the whole world where we don't have regulation for for, for organic uh, food production in Australia. And that's something that we spend a lot of time talking to government agencies about. It's complicated because we are state-based here in Australia and to bring about le- domestic legislation, we have to have all the states and territories to agree. It also comes at a cost. Uh, and we're, we're talking to the federal government about bearing that cost. Do you think you're going to get some movement on that front? I think so. Um, we're, we're, we're building a strong business case because mm-hmm. we have markets like uh, America, China, Europe and South Korea that won't allow us to have equivalency without domestic regulation. What that means mm-hmm. is that farmers that produce organic beef or organic grape, uh, grapes, if they want to export to um, Singapore, they can they can do that easily. But if they want to export to a lucrative market like South Korea, they need to obtain South Korean organic certification. It, it's very onerous. It involves six monthly audits instead of annual audits. It's very expensive. Uh, and it's, in my opinion, unnecessary and it's only necessary because we, our diplomats haven't been able to negotiate equivalency because we don't have domestic regulation in Australia. So what the, what the um, Korean government's basically saying is we need you to have domestic regulation or we're not going to give you the equivalency that you're looking for. Interesting. And I see why it's of priority for that group as chair of the Organic Industries of Australia. You're also being recognised for significant service to professional organisations. Tell me how you have uh, bought in and made a priority the mental health of your organisation. So a few years ago, I attended uh, a lunch and learn. And I'm lucky to, to have that opportunity here in Brisbane, although during COVID that moved to everything being virtual. And I attend lots of random lunch and learns about um, subject matter that, that I don't have any experience in. And at one of these events, uh, there was a lady who was speaking who was uh, had attempted suicide off the Story Bridge in Brisbane. And she was the only person that's ever survived the suicide attempt. And she spoke about it um, in the context of a room full of, I guess, leaders and saying, 
please do more to, to never have one of your team in this situation. And she explained that she went from being mentally well to suicidal in 48 hours. And I listened to her and I couldn't believe that, I honestly couldn't believe that you could go from coping to suicidal in 48 hours. And I thought to myself, is what can we do as a business to ensure that if I or my family or my team are ever in that situation, that they would have a safety net of people around them that would, first of all, know the signs and secondly, be able to prevent something like that happening. And so that led us down a path to um, understanding that there is some training that you can do and it's called mental health first aid. I had not heard of it until a few years ago. It's... it's um, for those of you that have done first aid or CPR training, it's that times 10. Uh, so it's not physical, it's understanding. It's a two-day course. It's offered all around Australia. It's offered in regional Queensland. And you learn to know the signs. You learn to um, uh, offer help. Uh, you learn to point them in the right direction and you learn to follow up. Now, I've used that training in a situation a few years ago let's call it a suicide situation and I was able to get that person help and they are going well and I think that I'm not sure that we would have had that outcome if I hadn't had the training so I know that it works. We've now embedded it in our small organisation where most of our team have taken up my offer for them to do mental health first aid training. Um, Amy I have so many people that not argue but might say oh there's not enough services for mental health in the bush there are so many helplines that people in the bush can access what we don't have uh, is is people that can talk about their feelings to a point where they can pick up the phone and talk to the professionals that can help them that's Darlene Ray managing director of OBE beef based in Brisbane today being honored for services to the organic industry and professional organizations with a member of the order of Australia Talking there to Amy and uh, Rural Alive and World does a great job in uh, Tasmania in the rural area if you feel like you need to talk to someone. Still to come on the Country Hour, latest trends in the lamb market, new rural careers placed on the latest apprenticeship list. Plus we'll check the weather. First up, the news headlines with Michael Dallafontana. Thank you, Tony. Opposition leader Peter Dutton has appeared to knock back an offer from the Prime Minister to sit down and discuss practical issues and suggestions on the proposed Indigenous voice to Parliament. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has indicated his door is open to Mr Dutton and others who want to discuss the voice. People have marched through central Hobart to mark Invasion Day. A crowd of thousands made its way down Elizabeth Street in central Hobart for the annual rally. A rally was also held in Devonport. An immigrant farm worker accused of shooting seven people to death near San Francisco has made his first court appearance. Chulin Zhao is the lone suspect in Monday's massacre of two mushroom farms in the seaside town of Half Moon Bay. He was formally charged with seven counts of premeditated murder and a single count of attempted murder. And four men have been kicked out of last night's Australian Open in Melbourne after threatening security and brandishing Russian flags. Police intervened after the group started chanting and waving the flags, one picturing Vladimir Putin's face after Serbia's Novak Djokovic defeated Russian player Andrei Rublev. Russian and Belarusian flags are banned at the Australian Open, with competitors from the two countries playing under a neutral white flag. More news at one o'clock. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Brooke Oakley joins us from the Bureau. Hello, Brooke. Good afternoon, Tony. 
We have an international cricket match on uh, Bell Reeve later on this evening, uh, T20, Australia-Pakistan. Are they uh, going to get the full game in? They should do, yes. The uh, main weather that we've had today is a weak cold front crossed overnight and brought showers to the west and the south. But those showers are already easing and are likely to clear this afternoon. So for Hobart, for the for the cricket, it's going to be partly cloudy, a top of 20 this afternoon, and then it'll start heading down into the mid-teens for that evening time during the match. For the rest of the state, it's going to be fine, apart from the chance of showers in the northeast. And the fresh west to southwesterly winds will ease this afternoon and tend southeasterly about the east. It, the temperatures have been slightly below average today, but they will warm up tomorrow as a northeasterly airstream develops over Tasmania. It'll be fine apart from possible light showers about the northwest and the northeast. It will warm further on Saturday, and Saturday is likely to be the warmest day of the week with temperatures reaching the high 20s to low 30s. And the northerly winds will become fresh and gusty as well. So this combination of warm and windy conditions will lead to elevated fire dangers with high fire danger for much of the state on Saturday. There'll also be possible light showers about the northwest and the northeast, but fine elsewhere until showers develop about the west during the afternoon. And that's as a cold front approaches the state from the west. The cold front should move over Tasmania later on Saturday, and that's why we'll see cooler conditions on Sunday. There'll still be some showers about the west, far south and northeast on Sunday, but mainly fine elsewhere. And then more settled conditions should prevail early next week with mainly fine weather on Monday and temperatures remaining relatively warm. Yeah, the prospects for Saturday, not uh, not uh, that good with the gusty winds, the problem, eh? That's exactly right. The thing that's stopping the fire dangers from getting even higher is that there's quite a moist air mass, but just the warm and windy conditions is enough for it still to be something to keep in mind. Yep, so uh, take care and keep, uh, I don't know, there's no warnings out at this stage, but there probably will be by the time we, we get to Saturday maybe. Um, warnings, what have we got? For today, we have a strong wind warning current for southeastern coastal waters from Wineglass Bay to southeast Cape. And for tomorrow, a strong wind warning for southeastern coastal waters from Wineglass Bay to southeast Cape, but including Storm Bay and Frederick Henry and Norfolk Bays, and also a strong wind warning for the central west coast. So if we look a little closer at the coastal waters, today we've got southwesterly winds at 10 to 20 knots, tending south to southeasterly about the east, and winds reaching up to 25 knots about the south and lower east during the afternoon. The swells in the west and south are west to southwesterly at three to four metres, and the wave rider buoy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading 3.3 metres. In the north, a westerly around one metre offshore, and in the east, an east to northeasterly below one metre, and also a southerly 0.5 to 1.5 metres, tending southwesterly two and a half to three and a half metres offshore in the south. And the wave rider buoy at Mariah Island is currently reading 1.1 metres. For tomorrow, we start the day with variable winds to 15 knots. Those will become north to northeasterly at 15 to 25 knots in the middle of the day, and winds are reaching up to 30 knots about the southeast during the afternoon, and then about the central west at night. The swells in the west and south are west to southwesterly of two and a half to three and a half metres, decaying to one and a half to two and a half metres during the afternoon. In the north, a westerly around one metre offshore. 
and in the east a southerly of one to two metres, tending southwesterly two to three metres offshore in the south. Beauty Brook, thank you for that. Thanks, Tony. See you later, Brooke Oakley from the Bureau with the latest information for you on the weather over the next few days. And uh, just mentioning that cricket, by the way, it will be on ABC Local Radio later on today. The Australian women's cricket team facing Pakistan, a T20 international at Bell Reeve. Catch the Landline Summer Series, hosted by award-winning journalist Pip Courtney. Landline is Australia's only national agricultural television show delivering stories from Australia's rural and regional heartland. Ahead of Landline's return for 2023, find the Landline Summer Series on ABC iView. From off-the-grid farming to crayfish, get a taste of Australia with Landline Summer, 12.30pm Sunday on ABC TV and iView. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Now, I do have a feeling that uh, lamb will be a feature on the Barbies various city around the state and around the country today. Figures released by Meat and Livestock Australia this week show we're eating less lamb, though, but we are paying more for it. Rob Herman from Mercado explains why local consumption continues to fall against steady uptake on the meat overseas. If you look at the figures, we've we've dropped from uh, in 2016 per head of population, we were consuming 9.3 kilograms, and and now the latest numbers out of 2021 are 6.4 kilograms, and uh, and that's a drop. Is it price? We're paying more. Um, so what's driving it? Well, we're certainly paying more. And the main reason for that has been the growth in export demand for lamb. And I just mentioned how our um, domestic utilisation of lamb in the last 10 years has fallen by 19%, but our export numbers of lamb has gone up by 48%. And and that's just the product following the market. The market demand and the prices are being driven by overseas. So there is a, it's fair to say that Part of the reason we're consuming less lamb domestically is the price. And if the price of lamb has, say, gone up a a dollar a kilo at a retail level, are the margins still there along the supply chain in a a local sense? When you talk to processors, they'll tell you that, um, you know, any any business like that is a cents and pennies business. And uh, they use that term a lot, actually, when you talk to them. And, And that's because, you know, they are trying to eke out margins it's, it's very competitive um, and we've also had a really tough period with um, you know even if you go back a year ago just trying to keep meatworks open um, get staff and keep going it, it'd be fair to say that that you know there are margins to be made there but it's uh, one of the reasons why we don't have a lot of players in the in the game at process level is that it's a very difficult business and I guess that's why a lot of the processes, I suppose, have been uh, reinventing uh, themselves in a way, focusing on on premium branded product alongside um, their their export carcasses. Exactly, and and the the ones doing that are um, you know doing it for the reasons that lamb is becoming more and more of a high quality eating decision, and that's good. That's good. Not only, not only in Australia, but uh, but overseas as well. I think it's also their belief that the sort of work that they're doing on premium quality products now will become the norm, you know, in five or six years' time. 
And so things we hear about things like intramuscular fat and um, lean meat yield and even the, um, the higher quality health requirements of, uh, of those lambs going into the quality pro- programs are going to be something that everybody's going to be trying to strive for because that's where the, the proce- these processes think they can extract a premium. And it's interesting that this, that, you know, there's this good uptake from breeders, lamb producers. They're saying, well, here's an example of where we can focus our genetics and focus our feeding programs and, and deliver to a customer who's, who values it. So what do you think are the economic drivers for maintaining lamb values in 2023? What's going to shape the market? One of the really good things about the Australian lamb industry is that we have a very diverse market. And even though we looked at, uh, you know, our domestic consumption is down, it's still it's 33% of, of lamb tonnage, if you like, headed for the domestic market last year. So we've got, we've got a strong presence still, even though it's it, it's been declining with a strong presence still domestically but we've also got a very diverse market globally and and that's that's a value so we're seeing um, you know still our biggest customers uh, China and the US but there's a lot of other customers around that are that are picking up lamb and, and that tends to spread the risk and it tends to create demand. Do you still have uh, have confidence that that US market is is going to grow even further this season? I don't have confidence it's going to grow this season. There's some resistance to the high prices. We've seen prices for uh, lamb cuts in the US come back in recent times. And, you know, we know that in markets, Larissa, that's when, when prices do escalate, that's what happens. Demand wanes. It was interesting this uh, last week, it was made, the point was made to me that, you know, one of the challenges is when commodities get too expensive and they get taken off restaurant menus and they get taken off supermarket shelves and they don't go back the next week. You know, those reviews of menus and and shelf space only happen every, you know, three months, six months, 12 months. There will be some... Uh, it's difficult to see that market still growing. I think one of the... Um, we know that China has been a... Um, uh, how can we say? Has been a uh, challenging customer for Australian agricultural commodities. That um, uh, market now is seemingly being... is much more... Um, is looking much more positive, I think we can say that. And so the feeling is that with um, China having less COVID shutdowns and, and an increased appetite for, um, for imports of lamb will be the beneficiary of that. And we've got to remember that the majority of, of lamb that goes into China ends up in the food service industry. So when people are locked down, those food service industries um, uh, struggle as well. What are you hearing in terms of volumes coming through into the processing plants. I know there's been a bit of a, a backlog and plants have slowed down. Uh, do you think that's going to dominate that uh, that end of summer processing situation? I think uh, there's no doubt there's a, there's a backlog we, and that's partly due to the season. Larissa, we know that, that the lamb turnoff was pushed back because of the, the wet. But on the, on the positive side, we know that by and large, most processes have addressed that labour challenge. I think the other thing that we've noticed is that the discrepancy between well, heavier and, and well-finished lambs, the price discrepancy between them and the trade lambs and the lightweight lambs and restocker lambs um, has indicated that there's not that demand for the light lamb and the restocker demand isn't there either. So, so that's an area where we think opportunity will be identified. And, you know, we know in the past the Middle East has been a strong customer of those lighter weight lands so 
Now, perhaps that's an area that builds again, given the, the changing dynamic of supply. And that was Rob Herman, Managing Director with Mercado, talking there to Larissa Smith about the latest trends in the lamb market. On the country hour, no butchers, bakers and candlestick makers, but blacksmiths, vet nurses and wool classes are there. They're among the careers given the nod by the federal government in its latest updated apprenticeship list. Now, the recognition allows funds to flow for employer subsidies and direct payments to apprentices and trainees of up to $5,000. National Farmers Federation President Fiona Simpson says she welcomes any investment into training. This is uh, very good news, Amelia, I think, to see these sorts of professions being recognised in a list like the Apprenticeships Priority List, albeit that this list covers occupations that are actually formally treated as apprenticeships and occupations that are also treated as a traineeship, which is a a subtle sort of difference, um, but an important one, I think, as we go forward towards our, our 2030 aims of having agriculture as an industry of choice and an industry where young people um, understand that they can be supported to have a strong career and understanding the skills too, I think, and recognising the skills that are um, involved in some of the professions within our industry. So very good news this morning. As you say, two quite specific ones around wool classing, which we know uh, there's a huge shortage of, and also uh, piggery stock people, but also some peripheral ones like vet nurses, for example, which are in huge demand, uh, gardeners, tree workers, blacksmiths and, and horse people. So uh, very good news this morning, I think. We've spoken at end about the, the workforce crisis. Where are we at at the moment in far, as far as the trends we've seen in more recent times? Has anything started to ease in any sectors or do we just need more of this, more um, investment into our younger people and people looking to retrain for the sector? Look, that's absolutely right. Uh, we need more of the same. We know solving this workforce crisis in agriculture is complex. Uh, we know that it involves bringing in more people from overseas who are are really wanting to work in our sector and some on a short-term basis and some wanting to settle in Australia. But we also know it's very much about uh, placing agriculture as an industry of choice for people who are school leavers or young people. And right now there is this enormous sort of opportunity, I guess, and, and ambition and excitement around agriculture. And it's important that we can harness the excitement that's around uh, you know, the sustainable agriculture industry of the future with the right skills and the right people and give those people pathways uh, in our industry and give people confidence that there are long-term strong employment options within many sectors of, of agriculture. And so we're going to continue to, to work with government and to lobby for not just more occupations to be added to this list, but more occupations in agriculture to be recognised as apprenticeships, which will provide then support not just for the people entering those those apprenticeships, but also, of course, for the employers that are taking on those people who want to be trained in our sector. Like you say, Fiona, there's uh, a lot of comfort, I suppose, in having a lot of interest from young people looking to take part. I know you at the National Farmers Federation support the, the gap year program, things like that. How many people are you seeing come through that that I guess maybe then strike a wall, if I can put it that way, and they just struggle to find the next step like the apprenticeship, the traineeship. Are there any examples that you can think of off the top of your head? Oh, look, there's an extraordinary um, gap at the moment, I guess. Uh, Our Ag Career Start program, uh, which again, we've worked with government to place 
young school leavers and, and mid-term university um, people on farms has certainly been extraordinarily popular. Um, you know, we're working towards placing 75 young people on farms this year, um, following on from an extraordinarily successful pilot year last year. And we know that every one of the people that we placed on farms last year is now pursuing a career in agriculture. But there is a gap in terms of being able to stay with an employer and undertake the, relative, the relevant training that you need to actually really fulfil that job and, and have a full career in agriculture outside the university sector. Uh, we do need and want this on-the-ground training where um, both the students, the trainees and the employers can be supported for long-term um, um, official training, for want of a better word, where um, you know they are supported to, to have the skills that are required in our sector and recognised, I guess, as a sector that is not just a, a low-skilled sector. In fact, it's not at all a low-skilled sector, but it's a sector of a, a huge variety of, of professions that do need, do need official training um, and benefit from that component of being on the job, but also training as well. Fiona Simpson is, of course, the president of the National Farmers Federation. Joining us this afternoon back on home soil, Fiona, let's let's talk about that trip. You've just had uh, a very busy couple of days overseas. Uh, yeah, take us into that busy schedule and what you've achieved. Yeah, thanks so much, Amelia. It has been was a whirlwind few days, I have to say, um, with Minister Murray Watt and some uh, departmental officials as well, travelling to the UK, uh, a couple of days in the UK and uh, another couple of days in Europe, uh, in Berlin, particularly talking about the UK FTA and the EU FTA. And for me, this was very much picking up on conversations um, that I'd been having face-to-face with uh, farming organisation representatives, with bureaucrats, with decision makers, um, both in UK and the EU before uh, COVID hit. Uh, and of course, those conversations have had to move online over COVID. And it was good to be able to go back and, and meet those and see those people face to face again, to make sure that they understand uh, the sustainability of Australian agriculture, to make sure that they understand you know, what farmers are doing on their farms and the, um, I, I guess, the outcomes we're achieving when it comes to sustainability and, and how how we do things in Australia and how different uh, the Australian context is to the European context when it comes to managing our environment, to managing some of our invasive uh, weed and, and feral pests, to, to, to how we manage our animals in this environment where most of our animals are outdoor. Um, so, we, you know, we, we're very different from Europe where they're all shedded. So those conversations are critical. Um, the UK FDA, I think the finalised, the very last steps of that FTA should be hopefully concluded soon. Uh, the Prime Ministers um, have have agreed that it should occur in the first quarter of, of this year and so hopefully um, that's still on track. Uh, and, um, and then the EU FTA, the negotiations I think are on track next round in Australia in February uh, and still I think hopefully on track to conclude some stage this year. That's National Farmers Federation President Fiona Simpson speaking there to Amelia Bernasconi about the new careers given the nod by the federal government in its updated apprenticeship list. The recognition will allow funds to flow for employer subsidies and direct payments to apprentices and trainees of up to $5,000 for blacksmiths, vet nurses and wool classes who are included in those apprenticeships from now. Well, to fertiliser prices now, one of the biggest players in the fertiliser market says it's keen to reflect any overseas reduction in fertiliser prices. 
to ensure farmers here make good economic decisions and purchase the volumes they need for this year's season. Ben Sudlow is a Sales Strategy and Reliability Manager at CSBP in Perth. He says the demand for fertiliser is expected to be very high in 2023, especially after two back-to-back record grain harvests. Well, the way we look at it is you've taken off 50 million tonnes of grain over two years, um, which not that long ago, that, was a, that would take four years to produce, nearly four years to produce that sort of grain. And the, the nutrient removal levels uh, that come off sort of 50 million tonne of grain is, um, is colossal. So the expectation is that that's got to be replaced at some point in time. And the demand for fertiliser on the back of that, notwithstanding it's got to be a cost equation for the growers against their yield, is expected to be very high. So those prices, because we've seen that sort of drop off in prices on the overseas market, is that mm. starting to come into the domestic market also? Yeah, so it is. Uh, maybe you think about, you know, we, we've, we bought, we've started importing product from probably July in 22 for this year. We're bringing shipments in pretty continually. And as um, those have come in, we've pricing those and reflecting the the changing costs into into the into the marketplace, but phosphates last year they rose 260 US dollars a ton. They've probably fallen about 150 US since then. Urea's up 400 US last year, and and we saw weekly swings last year of 100 US a ton. You know they've fallen now 300 US dollars a ton, but not a lot of nitrogen comes in the market early. A lot of the phosphates, and I think the key thing for the local market is that or most straight phosphates that go on pasture or ammonium phosphate, your cropping compounds, most of those are imported now. Will be either in sheds in WA, they'll be on the water heading here, will be costed. And, you know, that, that, those costs are now reflected in the in the sell prices that we're seeing in the market today. So when you sort of made some of those purchases, as you said, back in July, that would have been a much higher price than sort of today's prices. So those stocks that you've got in store there that you bought at those higher prices, are they being sold for the current price reflective of the overseas market here domestically? Yeah, I mean, there's always a lag between, you know, I, I guess it only, it only becomes real, the, the offshore prices, in the moment we buy some and all the market buys some and we and all our competitors now uh, have pretty much priced in and that reflects a competitive market where, you know, anyone, uh, the, the market sets a selling price and, you know, particularly with the cropping compounds, they're pretty reflective now on what the average costs in from all across the market that those people have bought various ships in over the last two months, three months or six months. So when the price moves overseas, as it is at the moment, that downward pressure, it takes a, a bit of time to flow through domestically, but when it goes up overseas, it's pretty immediate, the price hike domestically. Is that how it works? Not necessarily. No, not necessarily at all. Uh, it... it, it Look, Belinda, I think your um, the assumption is that you know prices flow quickly up and flow quickly down. I mean, it goes back to the point with which you buy a shipment, or someone in the market buys a shipment. And if you buy a shipment, I um, mean, you can reflect that in the market. One thing that's probably key in here too, if you think about the fertilizer supplies, is that we don't want high prices. We would like the we we like uh, to put volume through the the business, and what that means is that we can have our costs low, the farmers buy volume. You know, we've seen some demand destruction um, globally on particularly products like potash. And as prices 
come off. We want to reflect those cost reductions so that farmers can make good economic decisions to put uh, what they need on to grow the crop and hopefully put more on. Ben, how are you reading the situation overseas, the supply chain uh, situation, which has been disrupted for so many different industries over the last couple of years? And in terms of pricing for fertilisers, say, over the next six to 12 months, how are you reading it? Twelve months ago, you know, prices were generally going up and it went crazy on the moment that Russia went into Ukraine. I think the difference now is that there's a couple of key elements of the last 12 months which are different now than they were 12 months ago. The Russia-Ukraine conflict, which while still on, still going, has the, the fertiliser world has sort of readjusted around that. Different trade flows are occurring and the volume of product is just going to different markets. You know, the Russian product, which was, where's that going to go to, is now flowing into markets where they otherwise don't care about Ukraine. It's going to China, India, Brazil, for example. So the, the supply is adequate. And it was nervousness supply 12 months ago that saw the prices jack up. Probably second big one, China, a big exporter of fertiliser, but they also have, will bring restrictions on exports to the extent that they want to protect fertiliser for their own market, their own domestic market. And when, when prices have come off, though, their concerns around uh, fertiliser price and availability becomes less, and they have, and have now, at least currently, and again, this could change uh, overnight, uh, exporting again. And a lot of the China, Chinese export companies are managing better some of the barriers that were put in place by the, gov- the Chinese government um, around permit systems waiting for um, exporting of fertiliser. So there's still and a little finally, bit more downward pressure you see there then? Um, I think the other one, Belinda, well, I think that's what's caused what's brought us down. The final one probably is worth, is worth mentioning is sanctions. You know, the sanction regimes that came initially, those have softened in a lot of markets. And with the sanctions and tariff regimes that are coming from various countries, they're more worried about m- making sure that they can get fertiliser into their country. So the trade flows into places like US and even more recently into, into um, Europe um, uh, I've seen carve-outs for fertiliser where sanctions or tariffs are not are not like they are even in Australia. So at the moment, uh, nutrient prices have fallen and what we've probably seen in recent months is they typically are now starting to level off. Nitrogen prices have dropped and are level off in the last couple of weeks. Phosphate prices have tapered off and potash prices have tapered off in, in most markets in the recent months. But does that mean it's not going to go dramatically up or down beyond here? You know, we don't know, of course. Ben Sudlow, Sales Strategy and Reliability Manager at CSBP, one of the big fertiliser companies in Australia. Speaking there to Belinda Veraschetti, ending the country hour for today. We'll catch you after midday tomorrow.